Section 27 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Miller. Chapter 8, Religious War in Germany by A. F. Pollard, Part 1. Charles V achieved a masterpiece of unscrupulous statecraft when he extricated himself from his war with France and left his English ally entangled in its toils. Cogent military reasons for the peace concluded at Crépy could doubtless be alleged. The position of the imperial army in the heart of France was more imposing than secure, and the disasters of the retreat from Marseille in 1524 might have been repeated in Champagne or Picardy. But there were deeper motives at work. However promising the military situation might have been, no prosecution of the war could have been attended with greater advantages than was its conclusion at that juncture. Charles was left with a freer hand to deal with Germany than he had ever had before. He had been more brilliantly victorious in 1530, but England and France were then at peace and at liberty to harass him with underhand intrigues. Now they were anxious suitors for his favor, ready, instead of reluctant, to purchase his support against each other by furthering the emperor's efforts to cope with his remaining difficulties. These were now three, Turkish, Lutheran, and Papal. With the two latter, he must deal to some extent simultaneously. The Turkish problem he was enabled by the friendly offices of Francis I to postpone. Few historical points are so hard to determine as Charles's real intentions with respect to the religious situation in Germany in 1545. Was it to be peace or was it to be war? We have much of the emperor's correspondence to guide us, but its help is by no means decisive. Charles was constitutionally hesitating. It was his habit to dally with rival schemes until circumstances compelled a choice. On the eve of war, he was still weighing the merits of peace, and it was always possible that an unexpected development in any one of his heterogeneous realms might disturb all past calculations. Yet there can be little doubt as to Charles's ultimate aim at 1545, or at any other date. The original dynastic objects of his policy had been achieved with wonderful success, and the subordinate but still powerful motive of religion came more prominently into action. His religious ideas were comparatively simple. He adhered to medieval Catholicism, because he could comprehend no other creed and conceive of no other form of ecclesiastical polity. As well let there be two emperors as two independent standards of faith. The church, like the empire, must be one and indivisible, and he must be the sovereign of the one and the protector of the other. With these ideas, it was impossible for Charles even to contemplate a permanent toleration of schism or heresy. 
his concessions to the Lutherans from 1526 to 1544 were not made with any such intention. They were simply payments extorted from Charles by necessity for indispensable services to be rendered against the Turks and the French. They were all provisional and were limited in time to the meeting of a general council. That they sprang from necessity and not from any reluctance of Charles to persecute is proved by his conduct in other lands than Germany. He did not attempt a policy of toleration or comprehension in Spain or in the Netherlands. There his methods were the Inquisition and the stake. Wherever he had the power to persecute, he persecuted. He abstained in Germany only because he had no other choice, and because he thought his abstention was not forever. And in the end, the most powerful motive for his abdication was his desire to escape the necessity of countenancing permanent schism. Throughout, Charles was steadfast to the idea of Catholic unity. But his determination to enforce it at the cost of war was the growth of time and the result of the gradual course of events. He is credited with a desire to effect his end by the method of comprehension. But room for the Lutherans in the Catholic Church was to be found not so much by widening the portals of the Church as by narrowing Lutheran doctrine, by the partial submission of the Lutherans and not by the surrender of current Catholicism. It soon became obvious that the Lutherans would never be brought to the point of voluntary submission. And so early as 1531, the emperor would have resorted to persecution if he had had the means. But from persecution to war was a long step, and he would have shrunk from war at that date even if it had been in his power to wage it. Before 1545, however, this reluctance had been removed. The logic of facts had proved that it was a death struggle in Germany between the medieval church and empire on the one hand and Protestant territorialism on the other. The fault was partly the emperor's. By making himself the champion of the old religion, he had forced an alliance between the anti-Catholic reformers and the anti-imperial princes. And from 1532 onwards, territorial and Protestant principles had made vast strides at the expense of Catholicism and the empire. It is not necessary, nor is it possible, to determine which advance alarmed Charles most. Both were equally fatal to the position which he had adopted. The threatened secularization of the ecclesiastical electorates would have converted Germany from a Catholic monarchy into a Protestant oligarchy. And such was the meaning of the proposal of the Lutheran princes in 1545, to revive the dignity of the electorate when, by the evangelization of Cologne and of the Palatinate, they had acquired a majority of votes in the Electoral College. Nor was that the only danger. 
A portion of the Netherlands would naturally follow the religious lead of its metropolitan city, Cologne. The accession of the Palatinate to the Lutheran cause threatened the Habsburg lands in Elsass, and a majority of Protestant electors might mean a Protestant emperor at the next vacancy. These perils and the persistency with which the Lutherans turned the empire's necessities to their own advantage convinced Charles that the issues at stake were worth the risks of war. He was sure that there was no remedy but force, without perhaps being certain that force was any remedy. At the same time, his experience in Germany from 1541 to 1544 had shown him how those risks might be minimized. The Landgrave's bigamy had driven a wedge into the Protestant ranks, and the success with which the emperor had widened the breach between electoral Saxony and Hesse had opened the prospect of further divisions among the Lutheran princes. Charles declares in his commentaries that his success in isolating Cleves proved to him the lack of coherence among his enemies and made him hope for victory in case of war and that he intended in 1544, if not earlier, to make war on the Lutherans is hardly a matter of doubt. He would not have made such great concessions at the Diet of Speyer in 1544 had he not foreseen that a final settlement of accounts with France would enable him to render those concessions nugatory. And the fact that the Lutherans fell so easily into the trap has been considered the most conclusive proof of their political incapacity. Within three months of the date of the truce with France, Charles was discussing with the Pope details of a war against the Lutherans. People would be glad, he wrote, if the Pope devoted to that object the vast sums he had amassed for war against the Turks, especially if the undertaking against the Turk had ceased to be a pressing necessity. He declared that one of his chief objects in concluding peace with France was to be able to conduct these two wars against Turks and Lutherans successfully, and there was a secret stipulation that Francis I should assist in his endeavors. The war against the Turks had been one of the pretexts for requiring Lutheran aid at the Diet of Spire, but Charles was taking care that it should cease to be a pressing necessity or to stand in the way of the other war he had in mind. Yet it would be a mistake to represent a religious war as the emperor's prime object. It would, in any case, be only the means to an end, and he was still seeking, if not hoping, to attain that end by other means. He had, moreover, greater schemes in view than a mere conquest of the Lutherans. He was, though to a less extent than his grandfather Maximilian, subject to dreams, and his dream from 1545 to the disasters of 1552 was to assemble a general council by means of which he would reduce the Lutherans to Catholicism and the Pope 
to reform. Then, having united and purified Western Christendom, he would march at its head against the infidel, regain the East for the Orthodox faith, and be crowned in Jerusalem. Maximilian had contemplated all these achievements, and had also hoped to encircle his brow with the tiara of a pope and the halo of a saint. But Charles would have been content to crown his life with monastic retirement. The object immediately under consideration in 1545 was the general council for which he had labored so long in vain. By this means he hoped to work his will both with the pope and with the Protestants. The Lutherans had for many years expressed a desire for a general council. If it met and they accepted its decrees, unity would be achieved. If they refused to be bound by them, the refusal would be a justification for war and a good ground on which to appeal for help to the Catholic powers. Secondly, the mere fact of its meeting would annul the concessions which Charles had made. And thirdly, the demand of a free general council from an obstructive pope would enhance the illusion under which the Lutherans labored that Charles was their ally against the papacy. In August 1544, Paul III had denounced the emperor's compliance at Spire, had reminded him of the fate of his predecessors from Nero to Frederick II, who had persecuted the church and had threatened him with an even more terrible doom. And Luther and Calvin had thereupon seized their pens in his defense. The Pope, in fact, was the chief obstacle to the council. But the peace between Charles and Francis destroyed all chance of successful resistance. And Paul III made a virtue of necessity by summoning a council to meet at Trent in December. As the Edict of Worms had been dated the same day as Charles's alliance with Leo X, so the summons to the Council of Trent was dated the same day as the Peace of Crepy, November 19, 1544. If Charles hoped for Protestant submission to the Council of Trent, he was speedily undeceived. The choice of Trent was a concession to German sentiment, but was nevertheless a Thoron Averon. Trent was only nominally a German city. In feeling it was almost purely Italian, and, on account of its proximity to Italy, Italian bishops would swamp the council almost as completely as if it had met within Italian borders. The practical exclusion of deputies made the adequate representation of non-Italian sees impossible, and the choice of monastic theologians ruined the prospect of an accommodation with Lutheran doctrine. The authority of the universal church was assumed by a gathering of Italian and Spanish bishops, who would unite to maintain the extreme Catholic theology and would only be divided by the political question of papal or imperial predominance. Even in the more favorable event 
of Charles prevailing, the Protestants had little to hope. A few practical abuses might be removed, but the medieval church would remain in essence the same, and an attempt would be made to force them within its pale. Hence they repudiated the council from the beginning. They denied that it was free, Christian, or general, the three conditions upon which alone they would recognize its authority. And that the Diet of Worms, which met in the spring of 1545, they demanded from Charles a permanent religious security quite independent of what the council might decree. Nothing would ever have induced the emperor to grant such terms. They would have involved him in the sin of schism and cut away the ground on which his whole position and policy were based. The one weapon with which he now hoped to effect his aims would have broken in his hands. So Ferdinand, who represented Charles, unhesitatingly rejected the petition. There was nothing, he truly said, in the decisions of Spire in the previous year to justify it. War thus became inevitable, but Charles still sought to postpone it. He was not yet sure of peace with the Turks, of the Pope, or of the allies he hoped to win from the Lutheran side. Although the Spaniards at his court spoke openly of the approaching extirpation of Protestantism, and although his confessor, Domenico de Soto, reinforced by the influence of Peter Canisius and other early missionaries of the Company of Jesus in Germany, was constantly urging him to take the decisive step. Granville and even Alma were still for peace, and the emperor halted between the two opinions. To bring the Pope to terms, he again made show of listening to the Lutherans. He expressed his intention of carrying out the decisions of the Diet of Spire and annoyed the Catholics by again holding out the prospect of a national council on religion in case the general council at Trent proved abortive. To this national assembly was also postponed the consideration of the various projects of reform which had been drawn up as a result of the Diet of Spire. The most notable of them was the Wittenberg Reformation, which was drawn up by the elector John Frederick and signed by Luther, Bugenhagen, Krusiger, and Melanchthon. Although it contains few traces of Luther's spirit, it recommended the establishment of a Protestant episcopacy on the ground that princes were too much immersed in secular affairs to exert a proper supervision over those of the Church. Possibly, also, it was intended to reconcile the great Catholic bishops to a change of faith. During 1545, however, the last reasons for hesitation vanished. The Turks threatened with war in Persia and with a dynastic dispute between Roxolana and Mustafa, listened to the mediation of Francis I and concluded a truce with Charles and Ferdinand in October. The emperor had nothing to fear from the kings of France and England, 
who were then engaged in a bitter war, and Christian III of Denmark had been alienated by the Schmalkaldic League's refusal to assist him in 1544, and alarmed by the admission into it of the Elector Palatine, who had claims to the Danish throne through his wife Dorothea, Christian's the second's daughter. The Council of Trent actually met in December, and Paul III offered 12,000 foot, 500 horse, a loan of 200,000 crowns, and half a year's ecclesiastical revenues in Spain for the purposes of war. At the same time, the emperor's personal efforts to check the Reformation in Cologne had failed. Hermann von Wied defied both the imperial ban and the papal bull, and was taken under the wing of the Schmalkaldic League. The primate Albrecht of Mainz died in September. Charles's candidate for the vacant archbishopric received not a single vote, and Sebastian von Heusenstamm was an Erasmian Catholic who owed his election to Philip of Hesse's aid, rendered in return for Heuselstamm's promise to purify his seed. Duke Henry of Brunswick was defeated in an attempt in September to regain his duchy with the help of mercenaries under Christopher von Wisberg. The sequestration of his territories arranged at Spire and Worms was set aside, and they were appropriated by the Schmalkaldic League, an act of violence which Charles expressed his intention of using as a pretext for a religious war. In these circumstances, the doctrinal discussions which the emperor renewed in the winter can be regarded as little more than a blind to delude the Protestants or a screen behind which he made his preparations for war. His representatives at the conference, Cochleus, Eberhard Billick, and Malvenda, all held extreme views, and their arguments were principally aimed against the Compromise of 1541. They revived the scholastic dogmas, which had then been abandoned. And the interest of their discussions consists, for English readers at any rate, mainly in the fact that Malvenda based his defense on the teaching of a forgotten English Dominican, Robert Halcott, died 1349. Charles's real efforts were directed more towards the more useful work of consolidating the Catholic and disintegrating the Protestant party. The leading Catholic opponent of the Habsburgs, Duke William III of Bavaria, who ruled the whole duchy since the death of his younger brother Ludwig, was won over to something more than benevolent neutrality by the alliance between Pope and Emperor by the marriage of his son with Ferdinand's eldest daughter, and the promise of the throne of Bohemia for their descendants if Ferdinand's male issue failed, and by the offer of the coveted hat of the elector Palatine if the latter sided openly with Charles's enemies. Still more important were the divisions among the Protestants. The imprisonment of Duke Henry of Brunswick Wolfenbüttel, and the seizure of his duchy had alienated his Protestant as well as his Catholic kinfolk, including the Duchess Elizabeth of Brunswick-Kallenberg, her son Duke Eric, 
and Duke Henry's son-in-law, Margrave Hans of Brandenburg-Kustlen, who were detached from the Schmalkaldic League by the promise of Henry's restoration. Margrave Hans's elder brother, the elector Joachim of Brandenburg, was already pledged to neutrality, and his cousin, Margrave Albrecht Alcibiades of Brandenburg-Kulmbach, was also brought into the emperor's net. But these accessions of strength were trifling compared with the advantages secured by Charles through the reconciliation of Duke Maurice of Saxony. Maurice's uncle, Duke George, 1500 to 1539, the main representative of the Albertine branch of the House of Wettin, had been the staunchest Catholic in the north of Germany. But his father, Duke Henry, 1539 to 1541, had been no less a zealous Protestant. Maurice, who succeeded to the duchy in 1541, when 21 years of age, was neither. The hereditary jealousy between the Albertine and the Ernestine houses of Saxony was neutralized by some extent by Duke Henry's adoption of the Protestant cause and by Maurice's marriage with Agnes, the daughter of Philip of Hesse. But Maurice was less influenced perhaps by religious motives than any other prince of his age, and he poured scorn on those who thought that the interests of the state should be subordinate to theological dogma. His Protestant education at the elector John Frederick's court did not prevent his recalling the Catholic counselors of his uncle Duke George. He readily followed his father-in-law, Philip of Hesse, in making a compact with Charles in 1541. Though he had not Philip's personal motive of fear, and he assisted the emperor to reduce John Frederick's brother-in-law, Duke William of Cleves. This first aroused enmity between him and the elector. The dispute concerning the bishoprics of Meisen and Merseburg increased it, and a fresh source of discord arose in the question of the protectorate of the sees of Magdeburg and Halberstadt, which Maurice wanted for himself and declared that John Frederick coveted. Karlowitz, an old adviser of Duke George and a member of one of the noble families of Meisen, which had sided against John Frederick as to the question of the bishopric, was untiring in his efforts to win over Maurice from the elector's side to that of the emperor. And the attempts of the archbishopric of Cologne to reconcile the cousins in the summer of 1546 proved futile. Luther had succeeded in allaying their quarrels about Meisen, but Luther was now no more. He passed away on February 18, 1546, full of forebodings of evil to come, and more dominated than ever by wrath against sacramentaries on the one hand and the Pope on the other. And revenge was taken for his diatribes against Rome by the invention of a legend that the great reformer died by his own hand. Luther had ample justification for gloomy vaticinations, and the internal weakness of the Schmalkaldic League was doubtless one of Maurice's most powerful motives for refusing to trust 
his fortunes in so ill-found a vessel. Busser proposed a dictatorship as the only cure, and Philip of Hesse would naturally be his choice for the office. Maurice, on the other hand, who could not expect to rank above Philip or John Frederick, suggested a triumvirate and refused Philip's invitation to enter the League as it was then constituted. A prolonged Diet of the League was held at Frankfurt from December 1545 to February 1546 without resulting in harmony between Philip and John Frederick or in the adoption of satisfactory financial or military preparations for war. Philip had been alarmed early in 1545 by rumors of the approaching peace with the Turks and wished to send the embassies to England, France, and Denmark to form an alliance with the Swiss and with Holland and to take the offensive before Charles's measures were complete. But John Frederick believed in peace to the last. He was deluded by Charles's assurances that he meant no war on the Lutherans, but rather another expedition against Algiers, and by the emperor's apparent confidence in peace, he vinced by his crossing Germany almost unattended from the Netherlands to Ratisbon, which base it was in fact essential for Charles to reach. So the time passed until the opening of the Diet at Ratisbon in June 1546. Eric of Brunswick, Margrave Hans of Kistrin, and some other Protestants whom Charles had won over were present. But Philip and John Frederick were absent. Maurice, who was still ostensibly on the best of terms with his cousin and his father-in-law, was told by Granville that he must come to Radisbon to conclude his agreement with the emperor. Maurice came, but he was determined not to sell himself too cheaply. Besides the grant of the practical administration of Magdeburg and Halberstadt, a demand which ran counter to all the principles Charles was bent on enforcing, he required the transference to himself of his cousin's electoral dignity and, what cost Charles a greater effort to concede, immunity from the decrees of the Council of Trent. So far as they might touch the doctrine of justification by faith, clerical marriages, and communion in both elements. Without these concessions, Maurice despaired of maintaining his position in Protestant Saxony. And with some other modifications, they were all granted by Charles. The emperor's confessor had advised him to tempt some of the Protestant princes with the bait of their neighbors' vineyards. But it was a sore test for Charles when, in order to attain his purpose, he had to grant in private to particular princes terms which he refused to them all in public, and to surrender that principle of submission to the church on which the whole war was based. Somewhat similar verbal assurances were made to Hans of Kistrin, Albrecht of Kulmbach, and Eric of Brunswick. On June 7th, the treaty with Bavaria was formally signed, and two days later, that with the Pope. 
but the Diet still continued, and on the 13th the Protestants repudiated the Council of Trent and demanded instead a national council. Pending its decisions, the compromise of Spire should remain in force. Charles laughed. He had already given orders for mobilization. Encouraged by the success of his diplomacy in dividing the Protestants and by the singularly favorable aspect of foreign affairs, urged on by the exhortation of his Spanish subjects, possibly carried away to some extent by the rising theological temper, of which the murder of an unfortunate Protestant, Juan Diaz, and its official approval were signs. Charles had taken the plunge, and on May 24th, he had announced to his sister Maria his resolve to begin the war of religion. The elector of Saxony must have been the only leading Protestant who was surprised by the decision. Philip of Hesse had long been seeking in vain to awake the Schmalkaldic League from its lethargy. But, expect it or not, the war certainly found the Protestants unfitted, if not unprepared, to cope with the crisis. Long immunity had created a false sense of security, and the League, whose military strength appeared imposing, was honeycombed with disaffection. It had not escaped the workings of that particularism which had proved fatal to the Swabian League and to the Reich's regiment, and its members were discontented because it could not grind all their private axes. The cities, and still more the knights, were hostile as ever to the encroaching territorial power of the princes, among whom Philip of Hesse was considered the protagonist. At his door was laid the ruin of Sickingen, and Sickingen's son mustered many a knight to Charles's standard. Charles, moreover, could appeal to public opinion as the champion of the imperial constitution, which the Lutheran princes attacked without suggesting a substitute. They had repudiated the Kammergericht, protested against the Diet's recesses whenever they pleased, and denied the authority of general councils and of the emperor himself. He was no longer emperor, they said, but a bailiff of the Pope. But if authority were denied to all these institutions, where was the bulwark against anarchy? They might seem to have resolved that the empire should not exist at all unless it served their particular purpose. It was this aspect of lawlessness which enabled Charles to pretend that the war was waged not against any form of religion, but against rebellion. When Hans of Kistren's chaplains were preaching the purest word of Lutheranism within the lines of the emperor's camp, who could say that Charles was warring on Lutheran doctrine? Henry VIII told the Schmalkaldic envoys that if they were threatened on account of religion, he would come to their aid. But he could not see that such was the case when so many Protestant princes were fighting on Charles's side. 
the emperor spared no pains to foster this public impression. On this ground, he persuaded the Swiss to remain neutral and endeavored to detach the South German towns from the cause of the princes. He sought, in fact, to isolate Philip and John Frederick as he had isolated William of Cleves in 1543, and to represent his offense and theirs as the same. In the ban which was proclaimed against them on July 20th, he recalled the Pack Conspiracy of 1528, the invasion of Württemberg in 1534, and the two wars in Brunswick and held up the princes to reprobation as contemners of public authority and disturbers of the peace of the empire. And yet Paul III was declaring at the same moment that the war was due to injuries done to the church and to the prince's refusal to acknowledge the Council of Trent. He sent the cross to his legate Alessandro Farnese, and offered indulgences to all who assisted in the extirpation of heresy. In his eyes, at least, the war was a crusade, and as such he commended it to the Catholic Swiss. The emperor himself, in his private utterances, confirmed this view. To his sister he admitted that the charges against Philip and John Frederick were a pretext, intended to disguise the real issue of the war. To his son he wrote that his intention had been and was to wage war in defense of religion, and that the public declarations about punishing disobedience were only made for the sake of expediency. And when the war was over, he told the Diet of Augsburg that the disturbance had originated in religious schism. There was no irreconcilable contradiction between the two contentions. To repudiate Charles's religion was a civil as well as an ecclesiastical offense, because it was impossible to distinguish in Charles the person of the emperor from the person of the protector of the church, just as Henry VIII made it impossible for men to distinguish in him the supreme head from the sovereign. Henry utilized the divinity which hedged a king to combat the divinity of Rome. Charles employed the remnants of respect for the imperial authority to extinguish Lutheran doctrine. It was always possible to represent heresy as treason, so long as church and state were but two aspects of one body politic. It was always expedient to do so, because the state in the 16th century was more a popular institution than the church. Numbers confessed to heresy, but few would confess to treason. To all these advantages, the Schmalkaldic League could oppose in July 1546 an undoubted superiority of military force. Charles would depend mainly upon troops from the Netherlands and his own and the papal levies from Spain and Italy. But the whole breadth of Germany separated him from the one and the Alps from the other. And prompt offensive action on the part of the League 
would have ended the war in a month. Promptness and boldness were, however, the last qualities to be expected from the League. Every question had to be referred by the commanders in the field to the League's Council of War, where it was generally made the subject of acrimonious discussion between representatives of the South German cities and the princes, or between the adherents of the adventurous Philip of Hesse and the sluggish Elector of Saxony. They were afraid to take the offensive lest it should damage their cause in public opinion. In particular, they would not violate Bavarian territory, wherein Charles was established at Ratisbon, lest Bavaria should be driven into the emperor's arms, where, as a matter of fact, it was already reposing. This timidity ruined their best chance of success. Schertlin, the ablest of the League's commanders, who led the forces of Ulm and Augsburg, had conceived the bold plan of marching southwest and closing the Tyrolese passes against Charles's Spanish and Italian levies. This could probably have been effected without much difficulty, and the emperor would thus have been rendered powerless in Germany. For the Tyrolese peasantry had sympathies with the Protestant cause, and their experience of Spanish and Italian mercenaries in 1532 made them anxious to keep them at a distance. Schertlin actually crossed the Danube, seized Füssen and the Ehrenberg Pass. But the League based fond hopes upon Ferdinand's conciliatory attitude, and its reluctance to offend him spoilt Schertlin's plan as its fear of Bavaria had prevented the proposed seizure of Ingolstadt and march on Ratisbon. Recalled from the south, Schertlin occupied Danavirt, a city where the Catholic Fugiers were strong, and here he was joined by the elector and the landgrave. The total force now amounted to 50,000 foot and 7,000 horse, but this formidable army wasted the whole month of August, while Charles advanced to Landshut with little more than 6,000 men and effected a junction with his Italian and Spanish troops. He then moved on to Ingolstadt and threatened to cut the Protestant communications with Upper Swabia, whence they drew their supplies. On the last day of August, the two armies were only separated by a few miles of swamp, Philip of Hesse succeeded in planting a hundred and ten guns within range of the imperial camp, but the bombardment failed to compel Charles either to attack or to evacuate, while the Protestants, for reasons which were afterward disputed between Philip and Schertlin, declined to risk an assault on Charles's entrenchments. The only result was a series of indecisive skirmishes between the light horse of either party. But the emperor gradually extended his control up the banks of the Danube in the direction of the forces from the Netherlands under von Buren, who crowned a brilliant march across Germany by eluding the main Protestant army and uniting with Charles at Ingolstadt on September 17th. The emperor could now assume the offensive. The Neumark territories of the Count Palatine Otto Henry 
a zealous Protestant, were overrun, and the imperial army made for Nerlingen. The Protestants, however, keeping to the high ground and resisting all Alva's temptations to come down and fight, headed Charles off, and he thereupon turned southwest towards Ulm. Again he was anticipated. Ulm was too strong to be taken by the camisado, which Charles proposed, and the climate and the lack of money began to tell heavily upon his southern troops. Three thousand Italians deserted in one day, and death thinned the emperor's ranks as fast as desertion. The term during which the papal auxiliaries were bound to serve would expire in the winter, and the Protestants thought the imperial cause would collapse without a battle. But their own difficulties were hardly less than those of Charles. Their German troops were more inured to the climate, but money and food were equally scarce. And it has been contended that the League's abandonment of southern Germany was due to financial straits and not to Maurice's attack on John Frederick. The cities were frightened by the loss of their trade. The Protestant lands of the Baltic, the French and the Swiss showed no disposition to intervene. The Leaguers, therefore, made proposals of peace. But Charles rejected their terms, refusing to regard them as aught but rebellious vassals. He had reasons for confidence unknown to the enemy. His diplomacy had, in fact, made victory certain almost before the war began. On October 27th, in his camp at Zontheim, he signed the formal transference of the Saxon electorate from John Frederick to Maurice, and a few days later Maurice and Ferdinand entered upon the conquest of Ernestine Saxony. The partnership was the result of mutual distrust. Maurice would have held aloof, could he have obtained his ends by peaceful means. But he could not hope for the electorate unless he won it by arms. Ferdinand was preparing for war in Saxony, and if Maurice remained inactive, he might find himself in as evil a plight as John Frederick, and at the mercy of a victorious Habsburg army. His desire to remain neutral was overcome by force of circumstances, and the most favorable view of his conduct is that in self-defense he was driven to attack his still more defenseless cousin. However this may be, Maurice had experienced great difficulty in inducing his Lutheran estates to concur in an attack on his cousin's lands. His preachers had declared that Charles was warring on the gospel, and that whoever abetted him would incur everlasting damnation. To discount these denunciations, Maurice produced a declaration from the emperor that religion should remain untouched where it was established. He represented to his estates that if he did not execute the ban against John Frederick, Ferdinand would, and that it would be much safer for them politically and theologically that electoral Saxony should fall into his Protestant hands than into the Catholic hands of Ferdinand. 
The counterpart of the argument was employed by Ferdinand to secure the cooperation of his Bohemian nobles. It would, he said, be fatal to Bohemia's claims on Saxon lands if Maurice were to execute the ban alone. So each prince joined to execute the ban ostensibly as a check upon the other, and they agreed on a partition of the spoils. On October 30th, Bohemian troops crossed the Saxon frontier and terrified the neighboring towns. Maurice undertook to defend them on condition that they did him homage, while he promised to protect their religion and to treat the elector with every respect consistent with his own obligations to the emperor. Zwickau, Borna, Altenburg, and Torgau all accepted these terms, and the greater part of the electorate passed into Maurice's possession. The news of these events reached the armies of the Danube early in November and exercised a decisive influence over the campaign in southern Germany. On the 23rd, the Protestant army broke up, and John Frederick hastened to the defense of his electorate. The League's plan was to leave an army of observation in the south to protect the Protestant cities if attacked, and to occupy the Franconian bishoprics while the elector reconquered Saxony. Only the last part of the program was carried out. The departure northwards of the main army was followed by a stampede among the South German cities. The Protestant light horse went home for want of pay, and the army of observation came to nothing. Philip of Hesse failed to raise the peasants and artisans in Franconia, and practically retired from the contest, while Gingen, Nürgen, and Rottenburg rapidly fell into the emperor's power. The moment had come for breaking up the disjointed league. The southern cities had never forgotten their Zwinglian leanings, or been happy in their political and religious relations with the North German princes. They, at least, had no territorial ambitions to gratify, and, if Charles could give them security for their religion, there was no reason for them to continue the struggle. Nuremberg, in spite of its strong Lutheranism, had from the first refused to fight. Granvella, always peaceably inclined, pressed on Charles the dangers of war, and the emperor himself had not the personal feeling against the cities which he exhibited toward the landgrave and the elector. End of section 27